Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Uh, This is one of over 900 programs that we've done since the pandemic began. And I'd like to welcome our online audiences and all those of you who watch later on a YouTube channel. Today we have Craig McNamara um, with his book, Because Our Fathers Lied. Uh, It's about uh, his life and his relationship with his father, Robert McNamara. And uh, it's such a classic case of the generation gap and the Vietnam Vietnam War issues uh, that our generation faced that uh, we really are very happy to bring this to you today. Um, anybody that lived through that is going to learn something uh, wonderful uh, and, uh, you know, terrible, uh, both at the same time, about what we went through. And those of you who are much younger, uh, you might have some idea why your elders occasionally say, well, that's not that much social disruption um, compared to what we went through. So, Craig, thank you very much for joining us um, and for also for writing down your honest uh, memoirs about a very difficult time and situation. Well, George, thank you. It's uh, truly an honor and a privilege to be with you and uh, with your audience. I'm here in Winters, California, on our family farm, and uh, we're coming up on our 42nd year of, of farming organically and finding peace in what we do here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you, and it's also a, a very interesting thing uh, choice, which you discuss in your book uh, about the uh, you know, doing something slightly different than your father did with his uh, working life, uh, running a, an organic walnut farm here in California. Not, uh, Winters is not too far from Davis and Sacramento, that area of Northern California. It really is. We're right in the, in the heart of California agriculture. And I realize why I'm here really is because my entire adult life, in one way or another, has been lived through the lens of the Vietnam War. And writing this memoir gave me the opportunity to not only take a deep dive into that, the American war, but my father's role in the war and consequently our amazing relationship. And I say amazing because my mother and father early on introduced me to nature and really nature is my lifeblood today. So the gifts that they gave me throughout my life are profound. And yet, as you said, um, my book is titled Because Our Fathers Lied. So that's what you and I are going to be delving into today. Why, why is that? Yeah, you, you start with a Kipling quote, which includes the line, uh, Because Our Fathers Lied, which is about war back you know, in his time. And <clears throat> I think it's, it's a very common experience that... Uh, those who aren't involved can't really understand what the people who are making the decisions are doing, how much they keep from everybody. Um, the older you get, of course, uh, I mean, this, I think why being 14 or 15 years old for anybody is tough is to, to start to figure out that adults actually lie uh, and seriously lie uh, to, to the next generation. Um, but, but let's talk about a little bit about your father first, and then we'll go deeply into the war. What you have several anecdotes uh, in your story that, give a completely different impression of your father than, of course, uh, most people who, who just saw him as the Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War would have come up with. Um, you, you mentioned your, his, his interest in nature and that you and he uh, bonded many times for your whole lives even, uh, going through hiking together, camping together, 
Um, but it was a little surprising to, to, to find out that your father was a skinny dipper, for example. <laughs> well, you, know, you know, it's so interesting. Um, during the course of, of writing and more recently of publishing, um, the words that people have spoken to me about the book, I didn't realize that it would resonate in different ways that it has. Uh, one way that ref- in reference to what you're talking about is the power that Robert McNamara wielded and, and the, and the uh, not celebrity status, but how famous a person he, he was. Those are words, power and famous are not words that I would have used to describe my father. And I, I imagine that's because I'm his son. And in a certain way, he and my mother were able to raise us, uh, my two sisters and myself, in a world that was touched with reality. So I give them credit for that. And I want to go back to one thing you said, George, and that is the title of my book does come from a Rudyard Kipling poem. And that poem is entitled Epitaphs of the War, 1914 to 1918. And the quote is, if any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. So I've had many people ask me, why did you say fathers, plural? Well, it's uh, taken from his quote. And the quote, the poem, is about Rudyard Kipling's son. Rudyard Kipling, in essence, lied because Rudyard Kipling's son wanted to fight in World War I. However, he wore glasses. He was not able to fight. His father lied to the higher-ups to get him into the war. The son's glasses during a confrontation fell off, and he was killed. So the poem is a, um, a sorrow to his son. And I thought it very appropriate because it's not just my father who lied. The lies continue on um, from men who continue to lead uh, governments across the United States and across the world. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you talk about, you know, it, 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 and it's very serious, um, is you're dealing with the idea that your father is considered a war criminal by other people. Um, and the, one of the questions that I had for you was, do you think that it would have been different if, uh, you'd been the son of FDR or, uh, Dwight Eisenhower and, uh, during the world war two, and of course they were responsible for decisions that led to lots of deaths. Do you think that there would be a distinct difference in your, your reaction to the situation? That's a profound In other words, was, was the Vietnam War unusual in this way? I, I believe that it was. Uh, I've talked to conscientious objectors. I've talked to veterans of, of Vietnam and other wars. And they refer to World War II as a global conflict where we needed to take action. We did not need to enter into a civil war in Vietnam. And that... You know, the issue of criminality, for those in our audience today or this evening who have had a chance to view The Fog of War, which is Errol Morris's uh, uh, amazing portrait of Robert S. McNamara, I encourage you to look at it not just because it's about my father. Errol and my father shot 22 hours to titrate down to what I think is a remarkable um, historical document documentary about conflict in the 20th century. And my father... Uh, refers to uh, uh, General LeMay and the bombing of Japan, saying, had we not won, uh, that we would have been considered war criminals. 
And by reference, I believe he's reflecting on himself in Vietnam. We did not win that war. It's very hard for me as a son who loves his father to say that my father is a war criminal. And yet by my, own, my father's own definition, I believe that he is. Yeah. Difficult words. And uh, as I said, you know, you, 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 a different situation. Um, people would have thought differently about what their fathers did. I mean, I, I particularly admire uh, military leaders who have the capacity to make those difficult decisions knowing that the best possible outcome is thousands of deaths. Uh, that's the best possible outcome in, 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 in terrible scenarios, much worse. But that they they do it in a way which is as responsible as they can under the circumstances for what people believe. So that brings us to what did people believe from that generation of our two fathers about what led them into Vietnam War? Why did they think it was such a good idea to get involved? In, I mean, you, you'd think colonialism was almost over um, and communism wasn't quite the threat that people had thought before, but, you know, but, but that generation had lived those ideas, um, not giving up on colonialism, being against communism. And this one kind of, shouldn't we help the French keep their property sort of thing on top of um, the, the anti-communism? So, well, I think you've mentioned several really important factoids there. One is you mentioned the French, so that that recognizes that we were involved in Vietnam in the 50s in a very significant and pol politic way in the civil. It wasn't even a civil war at that point. So what gave us the right? Uh, if I were, you know, I'm 72 years old now. Um, if I were to go back and to look into the mind of my father and President Kennedy and President Johnson in their 40s and the lives that they lived through the Great Depression, through World War II, the Korean War, and the spread of, of communism and, and red fear, I will give them that factor, that they had lived that, and that was in their um, mindset. The whole issue of the domino theory, I think, never had... Uh, legs to stand on. Um, your comment also reminded me, George, of the lessons uh, that first my father promoted in his memoir in 1995 entitled In Retrospect. And he came up with 11 lessons that Errol Morris in The Fog of War really crystallized. And lesson number nine, well, first of all, lesson number one is empathize with your enemy. And my father refers to the Cuban Missile Crisis was diverted through an understanding of the enemy's intentions, while the Vietnam War is sad proof that blind miscomprehension leads to irreparable destruction. Those are my father's words. And let me jump to lesson number nine, which gets precisely to your point, which I find very perplexing and difficult. It reads, in order to do good, you may have to engage in evil. And he goes on to define that. He says, opposing forces are the building blocks of existence. We cannot shy away from the evil required on our path to greater good. I, th I think that gets back to what you were referring to. That's a tough uh, lesson. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was the same, same idea on uh, uh, Hitler's uh, group. I mean, they, they said the same thing. 
basically, you know, for the greater good, you know, and, and just bring in popular culture today. I mean, Harry Potter uh, is also uh, uses the same basic idea that the uh, bad guy is doing things for the greater good. Um, it makes it for, makes it a difficult situation. We've always had that in as an excuse for what we're doing. Um, and sometimes it's more accurate than other. I think if you just say there's a whole spectrum of possibilities and where on the spectrum does this fall? And I think very unfortunately for your father and the others involved, the Vietnam War really fell on, 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 on the far end of the spectrum of why are we doing this? Um, and, and has certainly led to uh, an entire generation that those who have craw- crawled their way back to trusting the government at all um, had a lot of work to do uh, in our generation because the lie was so obvious, uh, you know, before. And I think another thing to talk about is uh, you were at Stanford, um, you know, against the war, participating in protests right in the years while your father was in charge uh, or, or, and, and, or right after uh, in charge from the secretary of defense point of view, he didn't make the final decisions, but, but certainly a player involved. Um, so you, you, you live inside your family, this generation gap and, and the lack of trust between generations uh, due to the decisions in the Vietnam War. Uh, I think maybe you tell a little bit about the story uh, of being at Stanford and what, what that was like for you. Um, it, was, it was incredibly challenging. I knew that I needed to leave the East Coast, um, which had been my home. I grew up in Michigan, so from I was born in 1950, and in 1960, Dad came home from work one day and said, well, Craigie, what do you think about moving to California, uh, to, excuse me, to Washington, D.C.? And I said, no way, Dad, I'm not doing that. I'll, I'm going to stay here. And, 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 and so we moved. And staying in the East Coast, being educated through high school, um, by the time 1969 came and the tragedy uh, that we were mired in 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 South in um, Vietnam, I, I wanted to at least leave the East Coast, come to the West Coast. My resistance to the war had uh, already been informed as a teenager, and so coming to Stanford in the fall of 1969 really was a, a participation in anti-war in the anti-war movement and coupled with receiving in my dorm room, um, I think somewhere around November, a letter from the draft board saying that uh, my number had come up and that I was required to report to the Oakland Draft Center. And I realized as a freshman, looking around me, why should I be entitled to have a student deferment when other men who weren't in college um, didn't have that same opportunity? So I thought I would I rode the bus around the Bay Area through San Jose, got out of the bus, and there at the um, facility were resistors handing out pamphlets. We went in. I went in with busloads of, of young men, stripped naked, and went through the um, physical, which, you know, I think any physical of that nature is dehumanizing, and came to the last stall, which was a man who looked exactly like me. He had long hair, a beard, glasses, and I thought this person would understand my torment. Um, I had had an ulcer um, for many years leading up to that. My mom eventually, I think, uh, pretty much died of an ulcer. And now, of course, we've learned that ulcers are, are, are treatable now. Back then, we didn't really know that. So I came out of that induction center with a 1A. 
and I, I, I fought it on the grounds of, a, of, a, of the ulcer and originally and finally got a 4F. And as I say in the memoir, that has um, brought me pain throughout my life, uh, thinking that I didn't, possibly didn't serve my country in the way that I would want to have done that. And that was the beginning of my leaving the country. That was the beginning of my leaving Stanford. I returned to campus that day, participated in guerrilla theater. We would disrupt classes um, and try to educate ourselves through teach-ins. And I think maybe you might be referring to taking that movement in, in, uh, to Berkeley, uh, to riots, taking that movement also to the uh, SFO, to the San Francisco International Airport, and reading, you know, for hours on end, the dead, the soldiers from California that had been killed in, in Vietnam. And that was a, an incredibly sad and poignant thing to do. And the response from the public at that time was, was not well received. I remember primarily men uh, being very angry at, my, at me being there to do that. Were you ever publicly identified as uh, Robert McNamara's son during any of those uh, protests? Interestingly enough, never. I, of course, I felt it, and I felt it, and I felt, um, I, I felt like an egg without a yolk. I, I had not been, you know, you're 19 years old, and you're trying to find yourself in a in an ocean in a tumult of of injustice and war and racism. And um, I knew I was beginning to lose my love of this country. And yet I knew it was a in a very important place for me to live. And yet I needed to leave it. And that's why I left Stanford uh, in, uh, in the March of uh, 1971. One little historical note for uh, those who aren't aware of the day-to-day, year-to-year changes in the draft during the late 1960s. There was a college deferment for a long time. If you went to college, you didn't have to go. And then that was taken away right around the time you came up, maybe 1968. That deferment was taken away. And then other possible deferments were taken away uh, because uh, people were, including the kids who were protesting the war, we're also protesting that this is not a fair system for, for choosing people because the people who have the capacity to get out and go to college are, are skipping the war and the poor kids are, are doing it. Exactly. So even, exactly. even the kids that were against the war were against the system. And so at the same time, uh, for those of you who are 18, this is why the vote was dropped to 18 years of age because everybody was arguing, you know, you, you, we shouldn't be forced to go to a war if we can't even vote yet. George, remind me that I, I so appreciate that historical perspective. Remind me when the draft was eliminated. Do you recall? It, it, yeah, it was eliminated uh, after the war was over. I think 76, 70, 77, something like that. It was, it was one of the post uh, Vietnam War losses uh, effects. Um, but it, you know, right at the end when, when, uh, when uh, Nixon was in trouble and was going to come out and everything like that, he didn't draft so many people. The draft was up. Um, people were, were assigned. But 1973, I think nobody was actually drafted. 74, just a few, that kind of thing. So, You know, one uh, thing I want to just address while we're talking about this is uh, the war, the, resist, the resistance uh, to the war and the struggle that the resistance movement went through, particularly the men and women my age, a little older. As I said, I, I was born in 1950. Many of the men and women who served 
were born in 46, so a few years older than myself. I don't think until I wrote this book and until I read this amazing um, book called um, Waging Peace in Vietnam uh, about the resistance movement, I didn't know how, how deep this went um, and how I knew how important it was. But, but the sadness of the loss that the, 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 the people who resisted the war, both in, who went to in-country in Vietnam, who left our country to go to Canada and elsewhere, how many years they lost um, and how, how uh, ostracized they were. And, you know, the, the, the resistance movement did have an impact, but it was long and it took a long time for it to have that impact, don't you think? Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, one of the ironies is that uh, John Kerry, the eventual Secretary of State, uh, was a leader in that movement uh, of the Vietnam War veterans against the war. Um, Yeah, it it was, I mean, people talk about the 60s from a lot of points of view and a lot of ways the methods of expressing uh, the anger and everything were were just the same as, as, as actually being in a war. So, uh, it was kind of hard to say that you were a pacifist if you were fighting the police uh, with violence. But uh, several points, I think, uh, about how people thought about it are worth mentioning. One is what I was saying about, you know, people saying, yes, we hate the draft, but it's unfair and it should, these deferments should go. Uh, another one was, you know, everyone was always focusing in the media on how many Americans were dying. And a lot of the protesters kept forcing people to think about how many more Vietnamese were dying. And I think that was an unusual uh, point of view. It's, it's, it's lost again, I think. People talk about, say, the Iraq War, uh, you know, uh, the, the first Iraq War. And, you know, we, we killed 100,000 people on the last day. And people never talk about that because, you know, we didn't lose almost anybody. So and, I, I think yeah. that's something that we, we, we try to avoid when we talk about war altogether is what's going on with the other side. You're absolutely right. And that number that we're, we're talking about is somewhere between two and three million people from Asia and Laos and Cambodia. Um, I, when I started to research the numbers for the book, I didn't know that we sent between 2.7 and 3 million U.S. soldiers to Vietnam. I knew that at any one time there was you know, above 500,000 of our troops fighting, but I didn't realize we sent almost 3 million and, you know, the number 58,000 deaths is very familiar. But how about the number of 300,000 casualties? And that doesn't even take into account those who suffered uh, tremendously um, from Asian Orange and Napalm. And I just want to remind myself, we dropped 7.5 million tons of bombs on Vietnam and Laos. That, that was more, three times more than World War II. We dropped 18 million tons of Agent Orange and 388,000 tons of napalm. And those two, actually all three of those are living on to this day in terms of birth defects, um, unexploded ordnance. And I want to, I know we'll get there, but I want to get us to this point. What could Robert McNamara have done? Okay. I want to talk at some point about when I think he knew that the war was unwinnable. But I want to talk for the moment, what could he have done once he left office to rectify the decisions that he and his cabinet and his military chiefs of staff made? He could have 
other than saying that the war was wrong, he could have deeply apologized. He could have listened to the families in Vietnam who lost brothers and sons and wives and uncles. He could have listened to our soldiers here, our vets, veterans of America, to their families. And he could have invested into funding ways to address our veteran population and heal our veteran population, as well as address the issues that are still happening in Vietnam. So I just wanted to bring that up front before we progress. Well, that's generous of you and, and, and a lot like your father, because uh, I have to say that if you looked at all the other leaders uh, of that time, uh, none of the other ones were brave enough to face all those questions and, and to, to talk about them in the public eye for the next 15 years or so. I, I read uh, just a short review of how, how, impressive somebody, how impressed somebody was with Richard Nixon and what he had accomplished, et cetera, et cetera, somebody who's young. Uh, and Vietnam did not, it was not raised in the entire uh, description of what he did with his life. Um, and, and, you know, we knew when he ran for office, he promised that he had a secret plan for ending the war, but, you know, that, that's not what he did. Um, so so uh, lots, of, lots of different fathers lied, uh, not just not just uh, yours, of course. And I'm sure uh, knowing institutions and how they work, once your father was outside the institution, whatever he had said about it being wrong, it wouldn't have made any difference to anybody from a from a decision point of view. But I think it would have made it would have had a cultural, a, a much bigger cultural impact earlier than it was later. But even so, uh, it still made an impact when he did come out and start talking about it. And the fog of war and its effect was really tremendous. Yeah. Right. So what could he have done? Um, during this process of writing uh, my memoir, I've had a remarkable opportunity um, to, to deepen my friendship with Daniel Ellsberg and Patricia, his wife, who are wonderful people and wonderful friends. And I've learned so much uh, through Dan's um, hands-on perspective and his historical documentation not only about did Robert McNamara actually resign or was he fired, um, but also about his life um, after he left office. Um, and, Just you know, one interruption. You know, Daniel Ellsberg may not be a name that some of our younger uh, uh, audience members know. Daniel Ellsberg was, uh, was one of the people who was responsible for the Pentagon Papers release and, and it was very much against the war and was he at the Department of Defense at the time he did that? I don't remember what. Yes. Is that where yes. he was? Yeah. I, and the RAND yeah. Corporation, but the Defense Department. And my father was the one who issued the um, order or request uh, to develop the Pentagon Papers. My understanding is uh, many people contributed to them. They were thousand, above a thousand pages or thousands of pages. Um, and he, he, my father, made a comment, I believe, to Dan uh, once my father was uh, uh, president of the World Bank, that in his capacity as a global uh, spokesman and global um, leader of the World Bank, that he it was not in his ability or purview to uh, come out and state what he should have or could have done or what could have been done in the Vietnam War. Then leave your position. Be true to yourself. And this goes back to... The issue of loyalty that I know you and I, George, we spoke of a little earlier. 
I, if if it's the right time, I'd like to share with with everyone. Um, my as I mentioned earlier, my father had a memoir in in retrospect that came out um, in nineteen um, ninety five, I believe. Yes, and in it. it, it in the first couple of pages, he said this, it is clear our nation has neither fully understood nor fully come to terms with Vietnam. The wounds remain unhealed and the lessons unlearned. And I said, well, dad, it's 1995. Why could you not have said that earlier? And why could you have not said, I'm sorry? And there was a pause. We were walking around uh, Tracy Place, Northwest Washington, D.C., and he said, loyalty. And I said, loyalty to whom? And he said, loyalty to the presence that I served. And um, I, I read a Life magazine article about interview with my father two months after he was fired. So that would have been May of 1968. And in the middle of a 20-page interview, this is what my father said. Around Washington... There is this concept of the higher loyalty. I think it's a heretical concept, this idea that there's a duty to serve the nation above the duty to serve the president and that you're justified in doing so. It will destroy democracy if it's followed. You have to subordinate a part of yourself, a part of your views, end quote. And I didn't have the wherewithal at that moment to say what I'll say now and that is, Dad, you took an oath of office, and that oath of office, just like it is today, says, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So he was saying he has, he's loyal to presidents, and I'm saying, aren't you loyal to ultimately yourself, to me, to the veterans, to the Vietnamese? Yeah, well, it's tough. Uh, we have plenty of examples right now of people who are loyal uh, to their political parties, uh, even at the, to the destruction of the country. Uh, if that, you know, and I'm on both sides. I'm, I'm not. I'm not talking about just one side here. It, 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 people feel the party is more important than than what's going on, and that little fight between those two parties is far more important than whether we, you know, deal with COVID correctly and so on and so forth. So I, I, you know, this is this kind of personal loyalty rather than institutional loyalty is very common. Um, Let's uh, there's one detail before I forget, um, which was a Halloween in the 1950s that you remember uh, back in Detroit. And you said what your, your parents dressed up uh, as the Adams family. Yeah. Yeah. And and seeing your father as uh, Lurch and your mother as Marticia, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, it was all before he went to Washington. Um, that, that was, that was a great insight into your father as well. Um, in addition to all the swimming pictures and, you know, he was fit, he was fit, at, uh, you know, when he was in Washington, don't see a lot of politicians that were fit. Um, he played squash with Orville Freeman, the secretary of agriculture. Yeah. I, I want to pause for one second. Um, I can, if I can find it here back to how you described my mom and dad on, on that Halloween you know, my mom, my, when she died early in uh, 1981 at about 66 years old of mesothelioma cancer, which is an absolute tragedy. She was the most wonderful mother, woman, wife, 
she was so humorous and kind. Actually, I just want to read you one quick thing here. I dedicated my book to her, and it says, To Margaret McKinstry Craig, she gave me her maiden name, her Pacific blue eyes, and her love of nature. It is her love that has guide, guided my life's journey. So I think, you know, when she died, my dad's uh, kind of on her, in her memory said, quote, one of God's loveliest children. And I think that's, uh, I wonder now, did they talk about all of this? Did they share, you know, I, I tell people the story that um, next to my dad's bed. So, you're, you know, they have mom and dad were had beds right next to you, right on his bedstand was a gray phone that had a red light, no dial. And as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, I was under the impression that that phone either went right to the White House and the president or went right to the Kremlin. I'm not sure which, but it was to um, avoid uh, nuclear war. And down on the first floor of our house, in a coat closet, was a, was this huge mechanical beast and it was called a scrambler so anything that my father would say in that phone was to be scrambled so that interlopers uh, wouldn't wouldn't um, be able to decipher it so my takeaway from that is could you imagine having that sleeping next to that phone if you're my mother and my father and in the night terrors that that must evoke Um, and what I was getting at is how much did he reveal to her the tragedies that he faced every day, 24 seven and how much of that eventually ended her life early. And I don't know. You have a very, very touching uh, piece of advice that you got from your mother on her deathbed. Um, I thought that was really telling. And I I think it's telling for women of that entire generation, um, and do you, do you want to tell yeah. everybody what you so, told them? Yeah. So um, as my mom was diagnosed with mesothelioma cancer, the doctor said, you, you have 11 months to live. And she died on the 11th month, the day of. And so um, we cared for her and hospice cared for her. And I would give her baths and, and take her back to her bed. And she said, uh, Craig, um, I want you to realize something don't do as I have done. I said, well, what does that mean, mom? And she said, don't give of your life to everybody so that you don't have anything left over for yourself. I thought, well, for crying out loud, mom, I'm 30 years old. I've lived that. You've you've given me that model of life and I love it and I live it and I want to continue it. And she's right. Um, She gave everything. And and that that was wonderful. But we do have to reserve something for our own health and for those who we love and society at large. Yeah. I I find it very interesting because from, it's just an aside of of another interest of mine um, in thinking about exactly the same idea as to what, what you give to other people and what percentage and what makes you the most effective with other people. And I I think it is uh, not giving everything. It's giving a much smaller percentage. Um, uh, but the more energetic that you are, of course, the more that you're going to give anyway, uh, like giving of your excess rather than of your substance. Because if you give of your substance, then you don't, you, I, I think you end up not having as positive an effect as if you reserve something. George, you know where that takes me a little bit? That takes me back 
to the title of my book. Why did my father lie to me? Okay, I get it. As a 12, 15, 16 year old, maybe a deep conversation about uh, his decisions were not appropriate. But was it trying, was he trying to preserve me? Was he trying to allow me the space to eventually find myself and to find my calling as an organic farmer? Um, you know, I do think that our well-being goes back to how we were raised. And so why did he, Robert McNamara, um, going to Washington, D.C., serving in Camelot, serving uh, the President Kennedy, how exciting, how dynamic, the um, tragedy of an assassination and losing the presidency and a new transition to the LBJ. I go back to my father's mother and father, my father's father, my grandfather, McNamara, I've learned was 20, 25 years older than my grandmother. He died when my father was in his late teens. My grandmother was a very stern lady, and you did not cross her. And I imagine that young Bobby had to toe a very tight line. And I just wonder, is that why he was the way he was? My father didn't, I assume he went to his mother's funeral. I met my grandmother maybe four times. She washed my mouth out with soap one time. Um, my father didn't go to his sister's funeral. These are flaws. We're, we're all flawed. I'm a very flawed human being, but it, does that come into why you lie? And is that why you put a president on a pedestal of loyalty? It's interesting because you talk a lot in your book about the absence of your father in your life, even though he was very present when you're out in, in nature and, and, you know, and he was a loving father, very clear but absent in many other ways emotionally. Um, it reminded me of a story, uh, I, I don't mean to compare him to Dick Cheney, uh, but, uh, but a, a Dick Cheney story that he told about himself. And I think it does tell, it's a generational thing. Uh, but Dick Cheney was very f- uh, proud of his own personal frugality. Uh, and in his, the book that he wrote, he tells about when he was finished being Secretary of Defense in 92, um, he drove back to Wyoming and he put everything in a U-Haul truck, you know, and, and, and put it on the trailer and put it on the back of his car and drove back all the way to Wyoming, a long trip. But the reason that I mentioned that is he, he had a new son-in-law that he didn't really know at all because his daughter had gotten married while he was in secretary of defense. And you can understand how being the secretary of defense in the family, you don't have a lot of time, even for new sons-in-laws or anything. So I think, They'd only his daughter had only been married a month or two months, uh, and the son-in-law, the new son-in-law, volunteered to drive back with him, you know, and, and share the share the trip with him. Uh, and then the comment that Dick Cheney makes is, and he had the I was very proud of my son-in-law because he had the good sense to not waste our time with conversation. You know, a 3,000-mile trip with your new son-in-law, and what you're proud of is that you didn't talk. That I think that just says something about that generation. So let me uh, jump in here, George, because you've reminded yeah. me of the two trips uh, that my father took. The first one was to meet uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba in Havana in 1992. Now, you got to realize, I grew up with Fidel Castro in the sense that um, two months after my father became Secretary of Defense, 
the Bay of Pigs occurred. That had been planned in the Eisenhower administration. Can you imagine being Secretary of Defense? And, and then the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred in October of 62. So, those, so that conflict, which my father thought at that time he would never see his family again. Um, I admired Fidel Castro, or at least recognized him um, as a global leader. And I tell the story in, in um, Santiago, Chile, of when he came to celebrate uh, Salvador Allende's first year as elected, freely elected socialist president of Chile. But what I want to tell you about is, so my father is going to meet with, um, with Castro and Khrushchev's son to discuss what actually took place. What were the realities? And I said, Dad, this would be an ideal time for me to come with you. I don't have to speak. I can be a listener. I can just be a company, a company. So no, Craigie, I just don't think it's appropriate to do that. And I said, really? Um, I too lived through this in a different way. And then that was even exacerbated when he went to meet General Zapp in 1995. And for those of you who are listening, General Zapp was the general who led the American war. He was a general handpicked by Ho Chi Minh to fight against America for 12 years. He was my father's counterpart. And so I said, Dad, this is, I'm 45 years old now. Um, I, I can join you. He said, no, it's just not appropriate. So the question is, why? Why would a father say that? Say that? Are you protecting because you, no. you, you, you mentioned that, that he invited you to come to see the fog of war at the, at the film festival. 2003, then, when he was, yeah. you know, in his upper 80s. Right. But even then, you didn't get pulled into too many things. So No, it's completely on my own. Arrived on a Friday afternoon, saw him in the audience, went out to dinner that night, saw him in the audience, you know, but not engaged. And so I, I don't think that's protection. I think it's, uh, you know, there's ego. We're all, we all have ego part of us. Um, is it the generational differences? Um, I think the thing that's so tragic is that we could have opened up doors for each other. When he died, he, he said that God had abandoned, when he was dying, he said that God had abandoned him. And I, and I wanted him to pass peacefully at that point. So I said, no, Dad, God has not abandoned you. You're in the palm of God's, ha God's hand and you can let go. I'm not a religious person. Yeah. And I asked myself, maybe I should have said, well, why do you think that God has abandoned you, Dad? And maybe that would have relieved him. I don't know. It's hard to be put in a responsible position and then, then find yourself, you know, going down a hole um, that you really don't see a way out of. That happens to a lot of people who are responsible too. Um, well, there's so much to talk about about those things, but we have you know uh, a certain amount of time here, and I really want to talk about the other part of your life. Well, before that, you know, I want you to talk. I just remembered a couple of things. You were in the White House uh, with uh, Kennedy to watch the first showing of PT 109. You sat right yeah. in front of him. Um, you were in the White House to go swimming when your father had to talk to LBJ, and you just swam in the pool, and LBJ sent you a nice note afterwards. You had a very, you know. It seemed normal to you that you had a very high-end uh, life. 
in Washington, D.C. for meeting other people, etc. Uh, but you took it all for granted, uh, I assume, as all children do. I, I think took it for granted is I would, tweak, I would tweak that a little bit because those were ages, like you said, 12 through, say, 14. You know, even flying in a helicopter from the Rose Garden to Camp David, they were unique and unusual experiences. Um, and I give my mom and dad a lot of grace and appreciation for making them, for normalizing them, for recognizing that they were special. Um, there weren't thing there weren't things that you were to talk about. You know, that's not something that you'd go back to Sidwell Friends School and say, "Hey, you know what I did this weekend?" Um, and and then I realized that th- this will never happen to me again. <laughs> you know, the the only time I've been back to the White House was. President Carter awarded my mom with the Medal of Freedom before her death in December of 1980. And that, that's, that was the only time back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it must have been interesting. You, you, you write about it. So I'll let people read about that, that going back there. So you, you mentioned, and you were talking about your father's trips. He, he also went to Santiago, uh, Chile, for a conference. You happened to be in, in, in Chile at the time, but you didn't see your father, even though he came to town, didn't contact him. People don't remember. One thing for, for the younger people to know, it used to be very expensive to call uh, long distance, very expensive. Now it's almost zero. So that's a big difference uh, as well. But even so, um, there was no contact. Well, why don't you, you – I was, I was saying before, you lived another part of the 60s, which is the movie Easy Rider. You know, uh, you you got on motorcycles with a couple of friends and you just drove from California to Chile. I know you dropped off the friends on the way, but uh, what an amazing trip that must have been. And then you lived there and on Easter Island um, and found your way to the idea of becoming a farmer. So why don't you tell a little bit about that? Because that that was a fascinating part of the of the book, too. I, I couldn't believe that you did all this stuff about Vietnam, and then you were also an easy writer at the same time. Well, well, thank you. It was I had to remind myself w- during this uh, trip of discovery that um, I would look back on it fifty years hence, and maybe be at the Commonwealth Club with George, and remember that it was really difficult. Um, there was a lot of aloneness, and as you mentioned, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have Gore-Tex, and we didn't have Velcro, so. Uh, just riding a motorcycle through, believe it or not, Costa Rica. We think of Costa Rica as sunshine and oceans, uh, Pacific and Atlantic. Well, there's some altitude there, and uh, it got really, really, really cold. We didn't have much to protect us. Um, I experienced several motorcycle accidents along the way. These were tough times. Another thing is that we got into Panama, and we hadn't figured out there's no road to South America. There's the Darien Gap. It's a jungle. It's still that way today. So we put the bikes on a fishing trawler and got waylaid at uh, San Andreas Island, which is in the Caribbean, and finally made it to Colombia. And where my two friends said, Basta, we're done. We're going to stay here. And I said, I need, I, I need to get to Chile. And actually, I hitchhiked from Chile, excuse me, from Colombia to Chile. And that was a remarkable experience. Um, and that, and, and that get that, that so that was 71. Um, I turned 21 on the road. I turned 21 April 18th in Mexico City, 1971. And I think what you asked is what I'd like to say is I lived with subsistence farmers and worked in their milpas, in their cornfields. They grew squash, 
and um, corn and um, beans. Those are the three sisters. And I learned um, that the production of food is intrinsically entwined in power and that the farmer is the lowest on the totem pole in terms of power dynamics. And I realized eventually that I wanted to be a farmer and to grow food so that I could produce it sustainably and provide it to people who needed it the most. That was my goal. And eventually after this long trip, after working in Mexico on an ajito in the state of Michoacan, I came to UC Davis um, to study plant and soil science. And that, that's what landed me here. I came back to the U.S. in 1974, spent two years at UC Davis, um, apprenticed with a Chinese farmer for three years, a uh, conventional farmer, and then was able to buy this farm in 1980. I will let the uh, readers read your stories from Easter Island because they're fascinating. Uh, but one thing that was nice that your mother flew all the way down to Easter Island, which is that's a long, long trip, just to see you for, for a week or so after you'd been apart from her for a couple of years, right? Yes. And, I mean, um, I was taken in by the families of Easter Island, and it was typical that you would call the, the, the mother of the family mama. And I can only imagine my mama receiving letters from me talking about my experiences there. I, you know, as a father, I have three wonderful millennial children and I, oh my God, my heart breaks literally for my mom and dad, their son, um, their only son, uh, their baby of the family was gone. And, um, and what's interesting, we haven't talked about, we did a little bit, Robert McNamara being president of the World Bank while Allende was president, and the World Bank was beginning to tr transition its loans, I believe, to weaken the Allende government. And Allende was eventually assassinated on September 11th of 1973. What do you think my father thought was going to happen to me? Being in Chile uh, during and knowing that I was pretty much of a leftist, what was going to happen to me? A leftist that was the son of the... Of, of, of Robert McNamara um, puts you in double jeopardy. Well, um, and uh, one other farming thing, you did spend some time on a hippie farm and you compared that to what, what the difference between, you know, people going back to the land that didn't know what they were doing versus subsistence farmers. And how long did you spend there and where was that? That was in the Midwest or something. I think. That was in Tennessee and uh -huh. it was um, the farm. Um, and it was a group of uh, people about my age who had given up their lifestyle and taken any wealth that they had and uh, to live on a commune. And they were doing quite well. Uh, and I think it existed for decades. Uh, I think it might even be in existence now. It's interesting because I worked on a true ajito in Michoacan, which is a collective farm. And it, they're amazing and they have significant challenges. Um, and it did change my idea of how I wanted to farm. Um, and I've been a, it's been a pleasure with my wife, Julie, to be in our 42nd year of farming here and to bring this next generation. Uh, two of our adult children have come into the farm. And I've got to tell you, as a first generation farmer, that is the best gift of my career to have family farming with us. And they're taking over, um, which in itself is challenging and wonderful. Mm hmm. Is it hard to, to see them make the decisions? I mean, because yeah, all the it's really hard to make the decisions. <laughs> it really is hard. And yet the, many of the decisions 
I've learned that that they put so much thought into their decisions. It's not a random decision. They've researched it, um, and they're willing to work hard to follow through with it. So it's been hard and wonderful. We have quite a few uh, questions from the audience. If anybody else has any questions for Craig McNamara, you can send them in uh, in through the chat room. Um, But I do want to ask one, or have have you tell one more story before we get there. Um, And that is a farming dispute uh, in your area um, that that the other farmers, uh, and and one in particular, uh, took you on as an enemy and, and called you communist McNamara behind your back sort of thing. Um, and what I found telling about your story was that you, you mentioned that you, you took his criticism in silence rather than to fight back and that you saw your father in that, your father's own behavior in that, that you, that you were repeating your father's backing away from that kind of conflict. So why don't you talk about that and what you, you felt about it? Yeah. Thank you, George, for bringing that up. It was, I was invited to the uh, County Farm Bureau. I happened to be president of the California State Board of Food and Agriculture, and that's an entity Select that the president is selected by the governor. The entity advises the governor and our secretary of agriculture on all issues pertaining to California agriculture. And so the president of the local farm bureau asked me to come. It was quite an honor. And just before I was to be introduced, one of the local former county board of supervisors, former um, farm bureau presidents, etc., a, a man who I had. Uh, locked horns with politically, um, stood up in front of the the whole um, Farm Bureau board. I was looking at the board members. I was in the audience looking at the board members. So this gentleman stood up and for 25 minutes railed on about how I was a communist socialist. Um, I was for way, uh, you know, land uh, tenancy, taking gov- uh, land away from um, private ownership and making it a cooperative lands. And he had mimeographed or Xeroxed a stack, literally two feet tall, of articles demonstrating how, uh, what a bad person I was. And I was just floored. And I looked at the eyes of the president of the Farm Bureau. When are you going to gavel this guy down? And six of the, of the 10 members were friends of mine, farmer friends of mine. So when, it, when he finally sat down and it was my turn to get up, I was thinking, what do I do? Do I defend myself uh, against the you know very uh, wrong, lib- libelous things that he was saying? And at that moment, I channeled my father, and I, I did what I think he would have done. Go ahead and do what you were asked to do. Present why you were there. Present what you were asked to present. And that's what I did. When I, at the end of the meeting, and I was on my way home, the president of the Farm Bureau called and said, oh, I'm sorry that happened. And I forgot to tell you, that man is armed. He packs, he packs a weapon when he comes to these meetings. I said, are you kidding me? You didn't tell me that? And you, so I got home and I told, told I came in and my face was just ashen. And yeah. Julie said, what happened? And I didn't. <laughs> a, a little detail he forgot to mention. Um, it's also interesting how, how when you're in a situation in, in public and you're attacked, that, that even your friends really don't stand up very often. I was very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> that's not personal. That's, that, that's thousands of years of history that repeat that over and over again. I hope I don't repeat that history. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we, we have 
Several questions from the audience, so let's go to those. Good. Uh, there's a question from Michael Menictus. Craig, at what point did your dad believe the efforts of the war were lost, and when did he realize he was getting inaccurate uh, reconnaissance information from General Westmoreland? Oh, boy. Uh, it's, it's through people like Daniel Ellsberg and Phil Tubman. Phil is a, a journalist from the New York Times and a professor at Stanford, and he and his brother are actually doing probably the foremost biography of Robert S. McNamara right now that I've learned that certainly by 1965, uh, Robert McNamara realized the war was not winnable. And here he was advising LBJ, um, traveling to Vietnam. And one of the things I don't know is how many times did my father go to Vietnam? There were several attempts on his life while there during the trips. But here he had the Joint Chiefs of Staff that wanted to ramp up bombing, uh, possibly use tactical nuclear weapons, um, possibly engaging China. And you have Robert McNamara trying to ameliorate the Joint Chiefs of Staff and answer to a president. And no president wants to lose a war. So to answer uh, Michael's question, I believe by 65, um, and just think of what happened between 65 and February of 68. Gee, it's... It's, well, let's make, a, let's make an analogy here. There are a lot of people uh, with responsible reputations that went to work in Donald Trump's administration who, who then felt that they were trying to moderate the situation um, and, and explained their, their actions based on that. And uh, sometimes we admire people who do that and sometimes we don't, right? So it depends on how they do it. But I think that this is... Uh, 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 here's, a stra- here's a strategy that... McNamara could have used. At that time, Bobby Kennedy was coming out against the war. Obviously, Martin Luther King had come out. George Ball, a very important State Department advisor, had come out. Why didn't Robert McNamara join Team A, leave the Defense Department, and you know, be a force for peace? But let's take more questions. All right. Um, one, one, uh, one other comment you know, before we forget. You're, you're, you mentioned uh, that Dean Rusk, who was Secretary of State, has a son, uh, Rick Rusk. Well, why don't you tell what happened to him? He, he, he was out to, to, to try to make amends, too. So I, I think the difficulty of this situation is conveyed by that story. So please tell it. Yeah. I, I think, George, I, I appreciate you mentioning that. I think the power of mentioning it is that Vietnam lives today. The history of Vietnam, obviously, but the pain of Vietnam is so much a part, so much a part of our fabric, our culture. And the story that I tell is that uh, Rich and I met on online, um, and I said we've we've never met Rich. He said, "Well, we might have met that day that our fathers were sworn in in January of 1961 when we stood in the you know East Room of the White House." Um, But literally, we never met, and we started with email, and then we we're phoning with each other and we had a wonderful friendship. And I shared with Rich that Emily, uh, my daughter who's now 30, uh, she and I were traveling to Vietnam for three weeks um, in November of 2017. And upon returning, our email correspondence and, and phone conversations increased because Rich was planning to travel with his son to Vietnam to meet a good mutual friend of ours who was putting on a, a, celebra- a memory of the 50th anniversary of My Lai. 
of the massacre that occurred. And Rich was writing back to me and saying, I, I, do you think I'll be welcomed as the son of the Secretary of State? By the way, Rich and his father fell out of communication for 14 or 15 years. Rich went to Alaska, became a truck driver, etc., and then eventually they wrote a, a book together. But Rich was very worried about his, his coming to Vietnam. He was due to go there, I believe, in February of 2018. And I learned in mid-January that he had committed suicide. And I was just saddened beyond belief that I don't know what prompted his suicide, but my belief is that Vietnam did. And to know the hearts and minds and tragedy that people feel today about Vietnam, we've got to learn and do better. Yeah, it's, it's uh, one of the things I think that our generation finds hard to, to imagine is the distance of time for the young uh, people because it's 50 years since Vietnam uh, ended, almost 50 years. And uh, at that time, it, in 1970, it was 50 years from World War I. And how our generation as children thought about World War I is basically how the kids today are thinking about Vietnam. And, and Vietnam wasn't important in, in, the, in world history the way it was. It was just emotionally devastating to the United States. And, and, uh, and I find that interesting, that, that that much time, because World War I for us was basically the, the soldiers that were still suffering from PTSD and so on that were in town as a result of it. And other than that, World War I was already long gone because World War II had covered it up. Well, all right, so... Um, Joe Sutter asks, I corresponded and talked with your father on several occasions. I was thinking about similar issues in my own research. I don't think that we learned the lessons that he laid out. Do you agree? So, have, do, you, do you think that we've learned oh, the lessons he lays out in his book? No. Yeah. No. And, and Joe, um, I don't. And I wish that he, my father, had been able to come to those conclusions and those lessons when he was Secretary of Defense. And I don't know, you know, I'm, we're human and we're all fallible. Um, but those 11 lessons, um, you know, number, number three of those 11 is there's something beyond oneself. And he writes, as members of society born into a global community, we have a responsibility to one another and not only to ourselves. How universal is that? You know, that's wonderful. And I only wish that he had lived that. Well, you know, in the Middle Ages, the people all hoped that the Pope would live what their ideals were too, and they didn't either. So um, the, ones, the ones that get closer, I, I think the easiest way to deal with, uh, you know, even Eisenhower and FDR and all these tough decisions and the generals like General Patton and Douglas MacArthur that did good things and bad things, is to think of life uh, for responsible people a little bit like a baseball game. You know, if you're batting 400 uh, in a responsible way, you know, you're pr probably one of the more constructive members of society. Um, and your father ended up in a difficult situation. And I'm not, you know, of course, I was against the war. That's a totally another issue, uh, as many in our generation were. But I remember somebody saying to me when, when we were protesting one time, says, anybody in the country could be a better president than Richard Nixon. Anybody but him. 
was in 72 before the election. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> You're saying anybody? I said, have you ever watched the politics at the local PTA, the Parent Teachers Association? I said, you know, this is, this is a totally different level. There might be 3% of the people that could do a better job than Richard Nixon, and, and only because he had these emotional issues. I mean, he was way more than smart enough to be president. Um, but to think that anybody could do these jobs, you've never watched somebody in the job, and, and, and it's, it's really 3 or 4 or 5% of the people. It's not, it's not that nobody else can do them, but it's a very small number of people who can do that job and, yeah. and live yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting thinking back to jobs. The first offer that was made to my father to come to Camelot to be part of the JFK um, cabinet was Secretary of Treasury, and it was mentioned to me just the other night by a, a historian. He said, "What if Robert McNamara had taken that job instead of Secretary of Defense? My God, the man was perfectly cut out to be, you know, a Secretary of Treasury." Um, and our lives would have been different. Yeah. Well, uh, the legacy is, there's a few more comments. Rebecca uh, mentions uh, that your father was raised in an era when the strong, silent type were idolized. And uh, Michael Menictus also mentions uh, that he, you know, that your father didn't want any dissent by his son. Um, and then we just got a comment in, we're, we're running out of time, but Ann Chadwick, said, thank you for your insights and candor and for leading the way to sustainable agriculture and educating our youth through land-based learning. So, Thank you, Anne. That's a wonderful, wonderful comment. And that does b- bring us all together. Um, and let me just say, our globe is so challenged by climate change. As eaters and farmers, for us every day, after our Commonwealth meeting right now, I have a family farm meeting where we once again are, are discussing climate change. How are we going to adapt to a changed climate? Um, for the, for, I thought as a farmer, I would just be composted. At the end of my life, I would be compost on the farm and I would farm into my last day. And I now wonder, number one, can we farm? Number two, should we farm? And number three, we had one of the most challenging financial years in 2020 because of prices, tariffs, um, trade negotiations, and um, COVID. And America needs farms like ours. We are at the peak of the regenerative um, farming. So thank you, Anne. I appreciate your comment. And we want to stay in farming. And the challenges are tremendous, you know, but I think looking ahead, um, first of all, uh, the emotional honesty with which we're trying to deal with the problems that you just did and talk about what our fathers did uh, is crucial, I think, to being able to move ahead uh, well, sustainably. But in addition to that, you know, there it, we can do it if we cooperate and talk to each other and get someplace and come to come some kind of common ground and not fight over little details. There's a whole range that will work. But we always like to fight with the people that are almost nearest to us on that on that range. Um, I did some work in, in, in alternative energy uh, as a lawyer, and we know that there's all kinds of ways to do it. It's just that the price point is not here yet, right? And so we know we've got technical, technological knowledge of how to do things, but we need to make the decisions that make those things work because we take into account long-term costs or, or however we do it. We, we, we're going to get smarter and smarter. The only thing that we, I think that we have to be really optimistic about that is that 
the smarter we get and the richer we get, actually, the more we actually pay attention to these issues. When we're not rich, we, we don't have time for it. The sustainable, the, the substance, subsistence farmers that you worked with didn't have time for any, anything uh, about these big issues for the planet. None whatsoever. No, no, no bandwidth for it. Um, so, so to think that we should go back to that subsistence farming in order to save the planet, I think is, is just, uh, an illusion. But, uh, I think it's entirely possible that we can think our way. But uh, I think we should aim at a betting average of 400 instead of try for perfection the first time out. <laughs> well, I, I love that. And George, in our first conversation over the weekend, in preparation for today, um, I found you to be a very optimistic person, a re- realist, but with optimism. And I, I want to share something. And that is, as farmers, we do something called fertigation, which is a combination of fertilizer and water. And I think what we need to do right now is fertigate our friendships because as we look at this challenged world of ours, it's, it's getting back to friendships and communities and families that will help us have the strength um, and the support to really create change. Hope, hope is only as good as you're willing to get out and fight for hope. And to me, that's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing is fighting for hope. Well, your book is a really great, uh, you know, plan for doing just that and uh, both going backwards and going forwards. Well, thank you very much, Craig, for uh, joining us at the Commonwealth Club. It was wonderful. Um, and so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its uh, 120th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, and we hope to see you again soon. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.